A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Trump promised over and over to run the government like a business. And any business pays it pays its workers, collects revenue, honors its contracts. I mean, that's just basic. If it doesn't, it would fail. And so for us to be, you know, not paying our workers, you know, breaking contracts, taking the penalties incurred from breaking contracts, not collecting revenue. I mean, it's it's a complete failure of the run the government like a business attitude that has been this mantra. And so I, I really wish the president would focus more on run the government like a business instead of build the wall promises. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. To our Friday episode of Pantsuit Politics. We have gotten a lot of feedback this week about our abortion conversation and reproductive rights have continued to be in the news. So we're going to do a little bit of follow-up to Tuesday's episode, including what's unfolded in Virginia since then. And then we will share a follow-up interview with Jessica Morse. Jessica was a candidate for Congress in California. We spoke with her before the election. Jessica did not win her race, but continues to be very very politically engaged. She was active in an on-the-ground way during the California wildfires, which she talks about quite a bit in this discussion. So stick around because I want to hear everything Jessica Morse has to say about everything. 
We also were so happy to speak with Jonathan Miller of the Mindful Communication Podcast about what we've learned about how to bring a sense of mindfulness to any conversation about politics. So make sure and check that out. The link to the podcast is in the show notes. Well, Sarah, I was really encouraged by people's responses to Tuesday's episode. Anytime we talk about abortion, I like just put my hands on my desk and brace myself when I open my email. But I feel like everyone really, in good faith and coming from lots of different places, have engaged in a wonderful discussion about where we are and where we need to be. Yeah, I had a lot of palpable relief. Again, I wrote about this in our weekly email, which you should subscribe to if you don't already, about how we had so many listeners that were just like, oh my gosh, thank you. I thought I was the only one. (laughs) I feel so much less alone in how I think about this topic and my frustration with how it's spoken about. That doesn't mean that we solved it. We still, in the national conversation, seem to have a complete and total unwillingness to give the benefit of the doubt, which we're seeing particularly in Virginia. And we had a few listeners who thought that depending on what side they were, that we gave the other side too easy of a pass, that we spoke about abortion in too emotional a way when it's really a policy concern. And I took all that in, and I appreciate the feedback. (laughs) That's what you have to do, right? Because we're probably not going to all see eye to eye on this. We got such an insightful tweet about this. Sometimes, like, those are words that seem like they shouldn't go together, right? But sometimes we get really insightful tweets. We got such an insightful tweet from L. Cohen on Twitter, and it says, I've been thinking about this in analogy to the Second Amendment gun rights debate. One side is saying, in no way do I trust the government to write laws restricting abortion because it's too complicated and they will likely not get it right. The other is saying... I think we need some restrictions on this because some people will do the wrong thing here. This is a huge insight for me and funny how it's likely flipped from the gun rights issue. I wish we could stop with the hyperbolic name calling and ratchet things down. And I thought that was really good because I do think when it comes to the Second Amendment debate, which we also take in a very kind of identity driven way sometimes, we have one group saying absolutely no restrictions and another group saying, please have some restrictions. This is a problem. And And I think that's true in the abortion context. I thought that was a really great analogy. It seems to be such a struggle to do that and to give each other the benefit of the doubt, particularly with regards to third trimester abortions. I'm almost at the end of my rope with this. I'm really frustrated, and I'm just going to be honest, I'm really frustrated with the pro-life side that there seems to be foundational assumption that anyone who is pro-choice, including Kathy Tran, who's a Virginia delegate, with four young children, wants to deliver babies and murder them. Ask yourself if you, to your core, believe that there are Americans, a great number of them, who want to murder babies. It's so frustrating to me the way this conversation about third trimester abortion goes because, you know, we've talked about this before, that the benefit of the doubt is sort of the currency so often in political conversation. And it just seems to be completely wiped away when, you know, abortion's hard enough, but when we get into this particular conversation to look at a woman with four young children and think that she is advocating for live births, And then the murder of infants is just, I'm about at the end of my rope with it. I'm just going to be really honest. I I have 
shined it on, and I'm proud of the conversation we had, and I'm so happy with the feedback from our community. But I'm I'm almost at the end of my rope with the third trimester conversation in particular. You know, especially as a mother, as a mother who has carried pregnancies to term and not carried pregnancies to term, like I can't imagine how insulting and frustrating Kathy Tran, <laughs> it must be for Kathy Tran. Like I know when I get in conversations about abortion and I get lectured to, it's so personally insulting to be someone who has stood on the banks of a river and scattered the ashes of my fetus and be told that I don't care about life and that I don't understand. I cannot fathom the anger she feels right now being turned into a talking point for a very cynical view of what she said as the mother of young children. I just pushes me right to the edge, right to the edge. One of the problems that I see in Virginia's law and the conversations around it that's that's similar to the conversations around New York's law is this assumption that mental health is meaningless. Mm-hmm. And I get worried when I see mental health coming up to go back to the gun discussion. You know, whenever mental health surfaces in conversations about guns, I get very nervous. And sometimes I get very nervous because I worry that mental health will either be rendered evil or meaningless. Mm-hmm. And I think both are problematic. And I understand the concern that people have about the breadth of what physical and mental health might mean. And I understand the concern that that is not a clear limitation on when the right to an abortion can be exercised. So I go back to the discussion that we had on Tuesday and just consider the fact that laws aren't good at making these calls. And I think to your point about the benefit of the doubt, instead of framing this up as mother is in the delivery room and just changes her mind. Mm -hmm. It is important to consider that statistically that's very rarely the case, and it certainly isn't the motivation for lifting these restrictions. Mm -hmm. And I think that we also need to remember, it's funny how in our country so often we sort of mythologize doctors until it comes to this topic. Mm -hmm. Because it is a meaningful limitation to say that a physician has to be consulted and on board to do this procedure. It is a meaningful limitation. And I understand that a lot of people don't trust that. And I have my own issues with trusting medical advice sometimes. And it is true that medical professionals are people. And they're people who are going to bring all of their own ethical and moral and spiritual convictions to this conversation. And that's going to open up tons of conversations, right, about whether doctors have to do these procedures. And, you know, we're not going to be done with this issue ever. And maybe we shouldn't be because wrestling with the nature of life is important. But I don't think we should be talking about this topic as though what we're really considering is women having no sense of responsibility mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to the the life that they've carried for nine or ten months. I think that is where we really are missing each other here. It's just infuriating, and it's such a cynical view of your fellow human beings, particularly your fellow female human beings. It's insulting. 
If I'm being really honest, it is insulting. And again, as we so often do, we've had this conversation with welfare, we become obsessed with the idea of the one or two scenarios that could be exploited or that would not be under our purpose or our guiding principle of the law. Instead of thinking about who might be swept in in ways we don't fully comprehend while we're being obsessed with the one possible case of exploitation, as long as I live, I will never forget Dr. Tweel in our conversation, which we'll link in the show notes, who had an involuntary abortion because her fetus was not compatible with life. It was a very much a wanted pregnancy. And she had to go through all these hoops as a woman who wanted this child and it was not compatible with life. And she had to be lectured to about adoption. And when she went and testified at Ohio about their heartbeat bill, she said, I got the impression that I was a sacrifice they were willing to make, that the legislators felt sorry that women like me would be swept up by this bill but that I was a sacrifice they were willing to make. And I will never forget that. That is unacceptable that we would sweep up women who are suffering through some of the hardest circumstances of their lives, often with wanted pregnancies, and would treat them as if they are immoral people not to be trusted with their own decision-making. It is infuriating. It's just infuriating. And it's hurtful. It's hurtful. And it is a mainstream part of the conversation in Idaho. Our listener Haley sent us a news story about a bill that's been proposed that puts abortion into the homicide realm. It says the draft repeals parts of the state code that prevent women and doctors who receive or provide abortions from being charged with homicide and puts the matter within existing statute for the prosecution of murder where it clearly belongs, according to one of the bill's proponents. And the bill's proponents, again, are a woman, Heather Scott, and a man, John Green, both Republicans. I keep mentioning the proponents of these bills because I think it's important to know that women are not united on this issue. Mm -hmm. The bills in Utah both have women as sponsors, and this Idaho bill has a woman sponsor. And this is a hard issue, but it really concerns me when we start talking about this in terms of criminality. Because I would hope that even people who really are uncomfortable with the idea of any abortion taking place could also think of this differently as a crime committed against a human being who lives independently of its mother. We are going to take a take a hard transition here away from the difficult conversation surrounding abortion and abortion laws I'll call of the country. And we're going to leave the United States and talk about some of the developments in foreign policy around the world. Before we started recording, Sarah, you had some thoughts about China that I thought were really interesting as the president has been tweeting away this morning about his desire to negotiate a new trade agreement with Xi Jinping. Okay. I need everybody to take a deep breath. I'm going to say something that is in a roundabout way good about Donald Trump, I think. Just let's take a deep breath and we're going to work through this together. Um, I was listening to the coverage of the new negotiations. Much of the coverage is very frustrating, like the fact that the Chinese thought they had to deal with Wilbur Ross and they thought they had to deal with Steve Mnuchin. And then Donald Trump comes and embarrasses them and wipes it all away. 
it's frustrating. I'm impressed that they're even showing up again. It's embarrassing as a United States citizen to hear the description of the current negotiations with regards to this trade war with China. And at the same time, when these trade wars began, I personally operated with the understanding that China was in a way untouchable, that their economy was so strong, that we were more dependent on them than they were on us, that their growth was sort of gospel, that it would continue no matter what. And it has been instructive, and I think mildly positive, (laughs) to see that that's not the case, to see that this trade war has affected their growth, that it has slowed, and that the pressure on them to do things that we all wanted, even Democratic administrations wanted, which is better guidelines, more consistently following those guidelines with regards to trade secrets and intellectual property, that that's on the table now because of the disruption caused by this trade war. And I just, I think in the past we've gotten into trouble when we decided we understood China and we understood exactly what was going to happen with China. Like we thought if China's not a democracy, they won't be able to participate in the global economy. Well, that was false. And so while I in no way, shape, or form endorse the method of the current administration, disrupting everyone's ideas on China, China's economy, particularly as it relates to trade with the U.S., I do think there are positive lessons to be had. How's that? I think that was good and important and an honest assessment of how trade really shouldn't be a partisan issue. Mm -hmm. Most of the matters that we're really getting at when we talk about trade – especially on the international stage, should be common ground for us. We should, we all have an interest in preventing the spread of human trafficking and stopping existing human trafficking. We all have an interest in protecting intellectual property, at least to some extent. We all have an interest in making sure that goods and services are affordable and that our economy is prosperous. So I think that the president's tactics are divisive, but the end state should be pretty common to all of us. This reminds me, I've been thinking more about Brexit lately, and I've talked about it on Patreon on the Nightly Nuance. Brexit, I think, is similar in that in the abstract, a no-deal Brexit, where the UK just crashes out of the EU without any kind of agreement in place, Mm -hmm. would seem to harm the UK so much more than the EU. And I think that's true. But the EU has a stake in getting an agreement done here. It is important on both sides because we've all become so intertwined. It's just not a knot that can completely untie from any perspective. And I think the lesson for the Trump administration here ought to be that we take both the benefit and the burden of that. Mm -hmm. Because what you're talking about, how China still had skin in the game, so do we. And I think sometimes the way we conduct ourselves in the world, we act like we don't. Like we could become an isolated nation and not trade with anybody else and just make all of our own stuff and live as prosperously as we do today. And I don't believe that that's true. And so I commend the administration on trying to put pressure on China to do better. I also caution the administration that You know, I guess you have a great poker face, but it can only go so far. Next up, we are going to share my follow-up conversation with Jessica Morse that covers government shutdowns and wildfires and what is next for this woman who has an incredible sense of foreign policy and the world around us. And I hope that you really enjoy hearing from her. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. 
The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Pantsuit. I am delighted to be back with Jessica Morris. Jessica, I'm going to be honest with you that I took your loss kind of personally because I felt like we had a conversation that illustrated that the United States needed Jessica Morse in Congress. So I would love for you to tell us about how your race ended up and kind of what your reflections are on that process. Well, thank you so much, Beth. Um, really honored to be here. And I feel like you guys are setting the right tone for the country of discussion, nuance, listening, um, which is what we ran our campaign on. You know, we were disappointed to lose. But we accomplished a lot and have a lot to be proud of in our district. We had an 18-point swing 
which is one of the bigger swings in the country, and um, had a 75% voter turnout in our district, was a straight up presidential level year turnout in a midterm election. So I ended up actually getting more votes than there were registered Democrats in the district. Wow. Yeah. So what we were really, you know, we had set out to run a campaign that was positive, focused on local solutions, focused on bridging that partisan divide and really listening. And there were some there there lessons to be learned there. I think a lot of people after the campaign came up to me and said, oh, if only you had been angry, if only you had been negative, um, if you only you had just hit them harder. And I looked at other Democrats on the ballot. We had a governor's race in California. And so within my district, every other Democrat, we out, we, we beat them by five to 10 points in my district. And so what that's telling me is we weren't just riding a blue wave. We were proactively persuading people to come out and, and be active and also inspired a lot of volunteers in a district where there wasn't a lot of uh, much of a structure. Um, we had over 5,000 active volunteers on our campaign. The last weekend alone, they reached out to over 300,000 voters. And then my district in California ended up getting the most votes cast in the entire state. So we had everybody mobilized, active, engaged. What was also interesting is we were a fairly heavy vote by mail district. So we had a full month to go reach out to people who already had their ballots and say, hey, don't forget to turn that in. Hey, don't forget to vote. And and so it'll, it gave us an advantage but there was also a disadvantage in that, in that our ballots came out right at the beginning, uh, right at the end of the Kavanaugh hearings. And what I found is that about half of our voters cast their ballots really early. And, and so they cast their ballots right during the midst of a hyper-partisan division in our nation. You know, I looked at the Kavanaugh hearings, the way people look at the, I don't know if you remember this internet phenomenon of the gold dress, blue dress. Mm-hmm. where people saw the exact same picture and came up with completely opposing conclusions about what it looked like and went rabid against each other, convinced that they must convince the other person what's going on. And and so for me, the Kavanaugh hearings did that to our nation, where it, it we were making a lot of progress bringing people across the aisle. And then after the Kavanaugh hearings, I heard a lot more people when I was out talking to folks on the ground saying, before I could even open my mouth saying, but are you a Republican or a Democrat? Yeah. Yeah. And, and wanting to sort of make their decision based on a partisan division versus the local issues that we were standing for and what we were fighting for and the change we were trying to bring. So it sounds like you've built a really important foundation that could be built off of by a future Jessica Morse run or other Democrats in your district. Before I ask you about what's next for you, I want to talk more about California because one of the things that I loved in chatting with you the first time was your focus on your district and your expertise about especially environmental issues in California, which have gotten significantly worse since the last time we talked. You know, California is really living on the front lines of climate change. We are our daily lives, our local economies and our safety are being directly impacted We've been having longer and longer dry seasons. Rain in California is supposed to start in late September and early October, and now it doesn't start until late November. But the same winds still come in in early October and late September, which means we have high winds and a full season of dry brush and, and in the forests and in the grasslands. And so what that means is there's a lot of fuel. And so that's why we've been seeing these devastating wildfires, because there is a lot of fuel built up in the forest and we get these high winds. And so 
a few days after the election, um, the campfire broke out up in the town of Paradise and devastated an entire community. You know, these communities usually have 12 hours to evacuate from a wildfire, and they had basically zero, you know, and people people got trapped. Um, a lot of these mountain towns have only one road out, and like the town I live in and like Paradise. And so that meant all of these communities sort of shuffled into one road, and they got stuck and traumatized. So three days after the election, it was probably one of the crazier things I'd done. I hopped in the car and drove up to um, Paradise and and worked on the fire relief effort, you know, which after after running a campaign, you're pretty tired. You know, it's like running an ultra marathon. And so it was a bit insane for me to go up. But I thought, you know what? I'm already on pace. What's what's tacking on an extra marathon? So we went up to volunteer and help out. And it was intense. You know, everybody I met had basically a near-death experience escaping. You know, I met a mom who had gone to pick up her child at at daycare and there were a bunch of kids there and the fire was coming. And so she and a couple other moms just tossed all the kids into their vehicles and they escaped through an orchard. You know, they drove through an orchard and she totaled her vehicle getting out, but got her and all the kids out. But I saw her a few days after that and she was just shaking still. And you know, I had been on the ground in Baghdad and the expressions on the faces of the people in paradise were similar to that of the people living in Iraq, where they had just seen their world get completely devastated. Everything they knew gone. You know, it wasn't just their homes that were destroyed. It was their jobs. It was their communities. It was their churches. And there's not a lot to rebuild on. I mean, the water main in paradise melted. And the hazard of of all of the homes that burned, you know, and these are old homes. There's lots of asbestos, you know, going around up there and um, and other, you know, lead paint that's now burned all over the ground. And so, you know, real sort of environmental issues and hazards to come back to a community and people were struggling with how to even rebuild. But I was grateful for the opportunity to be there and to be able to serve uh, because I had been focused on fire prevention issues so much. It was really profound to be there on the ground and to be able to be of service. It was also odd for me to be able to sort of switch into my actual professional gear. You know, I, you know, crisis response is a lot of what I did around the world in my actual work. And so running for office, you're doing, you know, three things. You're talking about policy, you're giving talks and you're raising money. And so it was nice to remember that I was capable of doing more than just that and um, and ended up coming in and, and playing a coordinating role there, identifying gaps, filling them and helping really coordinate relief efforts with a bunch of people who were deeply traumatized and devastated. And And for me, it just hit home how much California needs to work on these issues. What should those of us who are not in California know about the state of the recovery from those fires right now? It's devastating. And, it, and it's devastating to see sort of the political level because a lot of people didn't have insurance. You know, fire insurance in California has been going up and up and up because of the scale of the fires make it difficult for one insurance company to be able to cover people. And so people have been people who own their homes outright. Um, you know, these are the people that had lived there for 40 years and owned their homes, canceled their fire insurance because they couldn't afford it. And so they were left with nothing. FEMA will give people a maximum of $39,000 as their payout. And that's not enough. You know, that'll cover rent for a few months, but that's not enough to restart a life. So a lot of people aren't able to get back to the level of living they had before. 
and also people up in that community were people without a social safety net. So for example, I was on the ground at the Walmart parking lot where a lot of people had landed right after the fire in paradise. And it became this odd conglomeration of a tent city. And it wasn't really safe. You know, once um, official shelters came up, once, you know, it took a week for the president to declare a national emergency, which meant the emergency services took longer to show up like FEMA. And so and so people were just scraping by, which is how they ended up in parking lots. And so I went to the parking lot to figure out why people weren't moving to the shelters and what they needed to get going and realized that you had a conglomeration of the chronically homeless in Chico who were there, in addition to paradise evacuees who didn't have family or support networks to rely on. And so to help figure out who could get what services, I coordinated a group of people that work with the homeless in Chico, and so would recognize um, the chronically homeless and had relationships with them. And so I got them to come out and there were about 30 of us canvassing the tents for four days, talking to people, figuring, you know, putting, identifying what their challenges were, who they were, where they had come from, and figuring out what services they had available to them to get them the right support they needed. And what was amazing is everyone had a different reason that they couldn't move. Some people had car trouble, so we got mechanics, and some people had flat tires, so we got them new tires. Some people didn't know where to go. And so we helped them think through what support systems they had. Some people didn't have gas, so we got them gas cards. Some people were chronically homeless and the shelters that they were typically using in Chico um, that were supposed to be their safe winter shelters had been overtaken and were being now used for paradise evacuees. So it was important to recognize that this was a compounding problem that was exacerbating what was already a housing crisis in the area and made it exponentially worse with 52,000 people displaced at the beginning. And so what we were seeing were was a recognition that you couldn't just have a one-shot solution. You know, you couldn't just get people temporary FEMA trailers. You had to find solutions for everybody who was struggling. We ended up, and also there were rumors going around that the shelters weren't safe for people. So we brought photos of the shelters to demonstrate they could camp there and what services were available and caseworkers that were there to help people find longer-term housing and solutions. And, and what's hard to recognize is that when we have a wildfire like this, the ramifications last for decades. You know, the, the economy of this community is devastated. It's going to take a while to rebuild. You know, when we were there, Santa Rosa had a massive fire, you know, a year earlier and had lost a thousand homes. And now they are finally starting to rebuild. And so thinking about short, medium, and long-term solutions to this is going to be really crucial. Rethinking the way we do housing, I think, is going to be important. And I think rethinking our entire approach to wildfire is, is crucial. For me, it was very frustrating to see President Trump. I mean, one, it was, it was disrespectful when he said, he came out and said, oh, we should just rake the forest. When I, I was up there when he came and he was saying we should rake the forest and he call, kept calling the town of Paradise Pleasure. And so somebody in Paradise actually spray painted a sign that said, welcome to pleasure, bring a rake. And, you know, but it just, it, devast, it devastates me that this community was so deeply impacted and yet there isn't that level of support. And, you know, the, I saw the president tweeting out that he's going to take, he was, you know, threatened to take away FEMA funding from the victims saying, oh, California needs to get its act together. We're not going to spend one more dime on forest. 
But California has 33 million acres of forest land. 57% of that is federally owned. And 40% of that is private and tribally owned. And 3% is state owned. So for us to be able to make progress on these wildfires and stop paying out this cost of, of the devastation to communities and the cost of containment and the loss of lives, we need to put a significant forward investment in, in fuel thinning and, and forest health, which means we actively have to fund Forest Service Bureau of Land Management and the federal agencies that actually actively manage the forest. The funding piece is, I think, a poignant reminder of the effects of something like a government shutdown, because 35 days when we have California in this situation, we still have Puerto Rico recovering from natural disaster. I think about even Texas and Florida and the Carolinas. Many parts of the United States have these disasters that occurred that have ramifications, as you said, far beyond the initial awareness that was created of of the disasters. What impact do you see of the government shutdown in California? And what thoughts do you have about how Congress should should react to problems like a shutdown? I mean, the impact is on every level. I mean, we had Yosemite and Kings Canyon, you know, not collecting revenue in our district. Um, You know, all of our national parks went, I think they were losing an estimated $400,000 a day from the National Park Service collecting revenue. And you had them working on skeleton crews, deferred maintenance. I mean, you talk about fire issues, even the the fire crews that are supposed to be going out and, and doing fuels reduction, do it in the winter, right? So this five weeks before we had had massive amounts of snow in the mountains, was exactly when they needed to be doing controlled burning and forest thinning. Um, and we have these groups like in in the foothills, we have something called the CHIPS program. And they've been hiring guys from, you know, there's a there's a there's a crew from a, a tribal um, community that uh, from one of our tribes that is trained in thinning the forest. Well, they've been shut down because they rely on forest service contracts. And so when they're supposed to be doing this fire prevention work, the resources and funding isn't coming in for them. And actually, because they're contractors, they're not going to get that money back. You know, they're not going to get back pay. And the the impact on our community was striking because we have so many workers who depend on the park or tourists to the parks to be able to make a livelihood. And to have that shut down over Christmas was really intense because you had a lot of federal workers out of pay. And so they're tightening their their purse strings. And and yet you still had people coming into the park during Christmas, but without the maintenance of the park. I mean, it just, it's going to cost a lot to clean it up. And so I think it's reckless. You know, I get very frustrated, um, not just during this shutdown, but during any shutdown, the media conversation is often who gets the blame. And I think the question should be who gets hurt. And and I think we should have the courage to prevent these in the future. And, you know, I'm a budget wonk. I spent my career, I spent some of my career working at um, the State Department and USAID on the federal budget and saw how much waste is legislated into our budget cycle. So I think there are two simple things we could do and we need to push Congress to do. Um, one is to pass a full year budget. You know, at, when they, when they, fund the government in fits and spurts, not only is it frustrating and unpredictable, it also builds a lot of waste in because these federal agencies can't put money into contracts until they get 100% of their money for the year. But when they don't know what 100% of their money is going to be, they can't build a budget around that and they can't anticipate it. And so 
that means they won't get their money until essentially a few days before the end of the fiscal year, which means they only have a few days to actually put all of their money into contracts and spend it. And so we end up having this sort of prices right spending spree within the government right at the end, uh, because if they don't spend their money before it expires, they lose it. Which brings me to my second point, which is we should have multi-year appropriations. So, for example, in 2013, I was at USAID when the government shut down and USAID and the State Department had multi-year operating budgets. So that meant that they got one year's worth of money, but they had, um, I think, two years to spend it. So it didn't expire at the end of the year. So that meant when the rest of the government shut down, our money didn't disappear and we were able to sort of budget carefully and, and spend our money so that we could last you know, a few more months. And if we had multi-year appropriations, one, it gives these agencies the wisdom, the ability to spend their money wisely. And, and they don't have this false pressure to spend it just to spend it. And, and two, it means the government wouldn't all shut down at the same time, which makes it dramatically less politically appealing to try to hold government workers hostage and hold the federal government hostage by shutting it down. Um, it makes it doesn't make a statement. And so it be it loses sort of that political nuclear option um, that they've been using recently. And I mean, those are simple, right? A 1978 GAO report suggested multi-year appropriations and said the government would actually save about 20 percent in its contracts by having multi-year appropriations because we could then put money into multi-year contracts and wouldn't have to sh shut down and start them up again. So, I mean, everybody talks about fiscal conservatism, but I think it's really about being wise stewards of our tax dollars. And I think our government on every level is failing at that right now. And my last point on this is that I find it really ironic that one of the rallying cries of fiscal conservatives is, is run the government like a business. You know, Trump promised over and over to run the government like a business. And any business pays it pays its workers, collects revenue, honors its contracts. I mean, that's just basic. If it doesn't, it would fail. And so for us to be, you know, not paying our workers, you know, breaking contracts, taking the penalties incurred from breaking contracts, not collecting revenue. I mean, it's it's a complete failure of the run the government like a business attitude that has been this mantra. And so I, I really wish the president would focus more on run the government like a business instead of build the wall promise. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. 
Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. I could not agree with you more. I mean, I think a lot about business planning and how you cannot possibly be running an agency like the VA year to year. And and I think we see the effects of that and we're not happy with what we see. So we need some structural changes to, to fix that. I want to ask you, you mentioned your time at the State Department with USAID. You talked about being in Baghdad. What was your experience with voters kind of confronting a woman with this security focused, internationally informed background? It was hard. And and it's funny. I thought that that was going to be my greatest strength on the campaign trail. My Because I feel like my experience um, overseas and working inside of the federal government gave me a huge amount of insight into how things should be done. It gave me the courage to sort of stand up against just cheap political lines and stand up for what's right, because I had lived the consequences. Right in Iraq, I had lived out the day-to-day consequences of short-term partisan thinking and and was horrified when I came home and saw the media only reporting a partisan agenda of something that I felt was going to be a massive catastrophe that we needed to be alert to. I mean, right, we ended up with ISIS out of this. And and yet there was no political support for counterinsurgency programs and development as a counterinsurgency tool. 
because there was no public understanding of what USAID and the State Department and and sort of soft power was doing on the ground to try to mitigate and prevent conflicts. And, and it was funny when I first started thinking about running, somebody did, I, I, I met with a state uh, assemblywoman and she told me, she said, Jessica, your biggest strength is going to be used against you. That is going to be your weakness. And I thought, oh, okay, maybe it's because I, I talk too much. I don't know. Like maybe that'll be the biggest weakness. And, but no, it turned out that I was attacked constantly for my national security career, which in my district I thought was going to be my biggest strength. And and it was disheartening to see those attacks come from fellow Democrats. But it, but I realized that it wasn't just me. You know, what had happened to me is that um, I had stood up and described my career the way we talk about it inside of um, the national security apparatus. And talked about being an advisor to the Admiral at U.S. Pacific Command on U.S. India defense strategy. I talked about managing the budget, you know, in my budget portfolio at the State Department and how that's multi-billion dollar budget. And I got criticized for that because people said, oh, how dare she say she managed the budget? She was she wasn't the secretary of state. And and I thought, well, no, I mean, they just didn't understand that there's a corporate budget office inside of the State Department and inside of USAID. And and you have a, it's an amazing job to have where you have a lot of insight and influence. You're coordinating um, multiple agencies, negotiating with Congress on these issues. And but I thought nobody, no lay people understand that there's this budget office. And I was accurately describing my portfolio and the literal job description is manage the budget. Right. And so I was describing it the way it's described internally, but people thought, Oh, how dare she, you know, as a woman who looks 12, you know, that was my other disadvantage. I'm 36. And, um, and I was reminded every day that I, I don't look 36. So I found my political opponents played on that stereotype of it's unusual for women to be in national security. It's, I look too young to have done the job and therefore they cast doubt. And what was really disappointing is that the, my hometown paper um, sort of jumped on that bandwagon and wrote this, uh, this sensational sort of clickbait article um, attacking me for it. And I thought, this is so unfair. It was also my hometown paper, you know, that I had subscribed to my entire life and for which my dad had been a paper boy. And I thought, wait, wait <laughs> what happened to journalism? I mean, it, it was very disillusioning. But I realized I wasn't alone. I noticed when looking at sort of my colleagues running around the country, ones who were civilians from the national security world were also consistently attacked with almost the same exact type of article and line of attack coming against them. Um, Andy Kim, who ran in Virginia, Maryland, somewhere over there, um, he was attacked by the Washington Post. Um, you know, his opponents said that, you know, Andy Kim had claimed he had worked in the um in both the Obama and and Bush administrations. He had been a civil servant in the Bush administration and a political appointee in the Obama administration. And the Washington Post gave him a couple Pinocchios, you know, and said that he was lying. When civil servants consistently refer to themselves as working for the president, because we do. And, you know, you saw Abigail um, Spanberger and Alyssa Slatkin and Sarah Jacobs all attacked for their national security careers and their credentials brought into question and their work brought into question. I mean, even for me, my Republican opponent attacked me for my work on counterinsurgency in Iraq, saying that by by advocating for development tools, um, I was saying I was somehow advocating for terrorists. 
and and that I was supporting terrorists, which was horrifying to me that a sitting member of Congress has so little understanding of our counterinsurgency strategy that he would try to play that card and and so little understanding of what our troops are doing. But what I recognized is that national security organizations and national security professionals often only talk to other national security professionals. There's not a consistent dialogue with the public about what national security is doing, what national security careers are, and and the nuance of what happens in these jobs. And frankly, as a national security professional, you're actively discouraged from talking to the public about your work. And and that needs to change because there is a great public, um, you know, what what political opportunists are taking advantage of is the lack of public understanding of what these jobs are. And but I think we actually need more national security professionals to get elected to Congress so that we can make decisions that will proactively prevent conflict and keep our troops at home. You know, and no one cheers for a conflict that never happened. Right. Um, Because nobody knows about it. And but we need to be sort of telling those stories of of how we prevented conflicts or how we tried. And because otherwise we end up with a public that we see right now, which is a public that cheers when the Iran deal is unraveled, which was our best shot at preventing Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, you know, or a public that cheers when um, Trump comes out and says he's going to bomb North Korea and then cheers when he says he's going to eliminate sanctions and just give him a free pass. You know, there's there's a lack of and a public that cheers when we say we should have tariffs and and when our districts and communities and our low and our economy is being actively hurt and jobs are lost, you know, because of those decisions. And so we need to create a climate where national security professionals can speak out, where there's um, an appetite and public understanding of what um, people do in the national security arena and what that looks like and um, and what policy jobs actually accomplish um, so that we can start creating a dialogue and a foundation and a level of nuance in here so that we don't elect leaders and we don't have um, a public pressure to fumble us into World War III. Jessica, I want to ask you before I let you go, what's next for you? Uh, I cannot help but listen to you still feeling like, oh, we need this person in Congress and and more people like you, as I think you just well articulated, who have a realistic picture of the United States and how we fit into the globe. So what are you thinking about doing next? I'm looking at sort of my best opportunities to serve and and where I can serve our community. I'm ready to tackle some of the big issues in California, like wildfire and um, and feel like we need to be able to, I'm going to continue to be that voice of breaking down the partisan barriers so that we can really have dialogues between our neighbors in our communities and listen so that everyone's first reaction isn't to say, are you a Republican or a Democrat? Instead, I want them to say, what do you stand for? Mm-hmm. You know, what do you, what do you do? How should we solve this here? And, and I want them to say, listen to me. You know, I want them to say, hear my story, because that's what I want to do is is listen to my community and continue to be a voice. But, you know, we're still running the numbers and thinking through whether or not to make a run for 2020 um, or down the line, you know, with a 75 percent voter turnout in California. uh, You know, California doesn't really purge our voter rolls. So the people that didn't vote were, you know, dead or moved. And so... (laughs) It's hard to, you know, it, it, 
we're running the numbers and looking at what a future race would be, but an 18 point swing was pretty big and we started a movement in our community and I'm looking to build on that. Well, come back anytime when you have news to share, we would love for you to share it here. And thank you so much for spending time with me. Well, thanks for all the great work you guys are doing. I think you're just really forwarding the dialogue in our nation and just honored to be part of it. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We will be back in your ears on Tuesday. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. And thanks for making us sound better and smarter, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our production assistant which means we could not live without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you so much, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help make the show better. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband, Nicholas Holland, and my husband, Chad Silvers. Learn more about our live events that we're involved in and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with us and members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.